Tonight we start a new book, the book of Ruth. My wife, her favorite appliance in our kitchen setup is by far the blender. She goes through one about every three or four months. That's true. She uses it for just about everything. She puts things in there that you couldn't imagine that would ever belong in a blender. But the beautiful thing about a blender is this. You could take independent foods and then amalgamate and integrate them to create something that's new, that's bigger, that's better, and something that you would never expect would taste good based upon the individual ingredients that go into the blender at the first. Kale? Seriously? You're going to put avocado in that smoothie and expect me to drink it? You're going to put basil and spinach in that? And you think that on the other side, the kids are actually going to enjoy this? But somehow, they always do. We always are amazed. We say, that's incredible. God does the same thing. He can take the ordinary things of everyday life, even the things that we think aren't pleasant, aren't enjoyable, could never fit in something that he could call good, and he can put them into one life, amalgamate and integrate and blend them all together, and somehow on the other side of it all, he can look at it and say, hey, it's going to be good. And we, after tasting it on the other side, would agree. We say, God, I never could have thought that you could take those things that I went through and turn them into something that incredible. That's what the book of Ruth is all about. It's what we'll see as we go through these pages. We'll see God take pieces, scraps, fragments, waste, and he's going to turn it into something so beautiful, something eternal that will last forever, a blessing that will endure for generations, for ages, and even for eternity. Now, A little bit of background as we start the book by way of introduction. The ancient rabbis considered the book of Ruth to actually be an extension of the book of Judges. Some have even gone so far as to say it was a part of the original text of the book of Judges, that it's actually the third appendix, if you would. You recall from our last studies in Judges that the last five chapters of Judges were actually two appendixes, which were simply stories of ordinary life in the land in those days with the intent of illustrating what things were like. What was the spiritual condition, the spiritual atmosphere during that time? Well, Ruth is that also. In fact, the book begins in chapter 1, verse 1, by telling us that it was during the period of the judges that these things took place. Those last two stories in Judges, those last five chapters, they begin with Levites from Bethlehem that leave to go to another place. Ruth also begins that way, a Bethlehemite who leaves Bethlehem to go to another place. And then it's a story that illustrates what life was like in the land during the time of the Judges. But listen, the similarities really end there. The book of Ruth serves for us as both a contrast to what we've seen in Judges throughout and also a transition, a contrast in this way. We got used to, while we were going through the book of Judges, the sentiment of spiritual life, that which defines it as being immorality, idolatry, apostasy, lust, cruelty, and darkness. But Ruth, in contrast to what we've seen in Judges, is a story filled with redemption and fidelity, righteousness, selfless love, devotion, light, and restoration through obedience to God. And so Ruth really becomes for us an island of reprieve from the chaos that we saw within the book of Judges. So it's a contrast, but it's also a transition. God is preparing his people for what will become the kingdom years. He's preparing the way for there to be a king and a kingdom, order, righteousness, and blessing throughout his land and for his people. And Ruth is the transition that brings things into that state. It's an introduction to the books of Samuel, and it provides for us the family background of King David. Now, what's the purpose of the book of Ruth being in the Bible? God says that my word is always on purpose and it serves a purpose in the lives of those that will see it and read it. 
So why is Ruth in the scripture? A couple things to think about. First of all, it provides for us the genealogical link between King David and the tribe of Judah, which is of utmost importance uh, as we get into the New Testament and we see the lineage of Christ and, and, and the importance of where he came from. Also, secondly, it illustrates and develops for us in a beautiful way the law of redemption, how redemption works. And that, again, points us directly to Jesus Christ and our relationship with him. And then finally, it shows that faith and obedience still exists even in the darkest of times. And we saw that there was very little faith and obedience throughout the period of the judges. But God is always faithful to reserve for himself in any time, no matter how dark, a remnant of people that are faithful to him, that don't turn and swerve and go the way of everyone else, but will remain true to be faithful to him uh, regardless of what everyone else is doing. And that's what we see in uh, this portion of Scripture. There are two Mosaic laws that it's worthwhile that we look at or consider before we begin looking into this text that will come into play throughout this book. And if you understand them at the onsite, it will help you as we get into it. The first is called the law of the Leverite marriage. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 through 10, Moses gave a law concerning what should be done in the instance that a couple is married, a young man and a young woman give themselves in marriage to one another. And the husband dies prior to giving birth to a child. Well, the law of the Leverite was that the younger brother of that deceased husband is to take that woman as his wife and that their firstborn son will take the name of the deceased brother so that the name of the deceased brother doesn't perish from Israel. And so it was the law of the Leverite. It was practiced by the Jews. It was uh, sealed and approved by God, but it was also done by other nations. It was kind of a cultural thing that they would do to keep the name of the deceased brother alive. And that's going to come into play in a couple of different ways throughout the book of Ruth, the law of Leverite. The second law is the law of the Goel, or of the kinsman redeemer. And the scripture for that is Leviticus chapter 25. And here's what that law was. If a man were to fall on hard times because, uh, you know, of famine or because he was injured or something happened to him where he couldn't pay his bills and he had to mortgage his lands or put himself in debt in some way, there was a law, it was called the law of the kinsman redeemer. And the purpose of the law was so that that man would always have the opportunity to go back and redeem those lands or that property for himself. And it was a way of avoiding monopolies or the permanent loss of land and, and all of that. And so the, the, the kinsman redeemer law, the law of the Goel, was that if it was a family member of the person that was indebted, any family member, as long as it was a close family member and they met the requirements of the contract, that family member could pay the debt and the land could be restored to the family, whether it would be to the man or if he died, it could go to someone else in the family or the person who redeemed it. But it, but it was there to keep the lands in the hands of those who inherited it initially and not uh, you know, have these big land trusts and, and whatnot. And so it was the wisdom of God to preserve the inheritance of his people. And that is going to become a major theme as we get into the later chapters of uh, the book of Ruth. And so what we're going to see is a blending of those two laws coming into play. Land that needs to be redeemed, but there's a catch, and that, that Ruth is going to come with the land. So if you want the land, you get the woman. And, uh, and, and it's, a great, it's a great story as you see it unfold uh, in this thing. Now, the book reads a lot like a novel. It's four chapters and you could think of it as four different acts. Every chapter has a different scene and a different theme. Now, here's the cast. First of all, we have a man by the name of Elimelech. Say that ten times fast, you know. <laughs> but he's a wealthy, prominent Israelite, and he falls on hard times, probably better to say fearful times, because what we'll discover is that they're not impossible 
but he gets scared, and we'll see what happens. So that's Elimelech. He's the wealthy, prominent Israelite, the opening character. Then there's Naomi. Naomi is Elimelech's wife. She has a pleasant disposition and a faithful spirit. We'll see that they have two sons, Malon and Chilion. They play a very small role. They have no speaking lines. We see the wives of those two sons, a woman by the name of Orpah and a woman by the name of Ruth, who becomes the main character throughout uh, this picture that God is painting. And then finally, number five, a man named Boaz, who is another wealthy landowner who's directly related to Elimelech, but we don't know exactly how. But later on, we're going to learn that Boaz was the son of, get ready for it, Rahab the harlot. And, and, and that's, you know, you don't get that until you come to Matthew chapter 1, verse 5. And it'll go up on the screen so that you don't think I'm absolutely crazy suggesting that. But, but, but Boaz was the son of Rahab from Joshua's day. And so that tells us that the events that took place in the book of Ruth happened relatively early on in the period of the judges. But we have this man, uh, Boaz, who... Um, you know, is going to play a major role in this thing. Now, the whole thing, the whole story of the book of Ruth is a parallel to the Christian life. And it illustrates greatly the love relationship between the Redeemer, that is Jesus, and the redeemed, that's us. And thus the whole thing, the whole book of Ruth is ripe with insights for us concerning our relationship with God. Well, let's get into the text as we begin to uh, uncover the drama that God lays out for us to learn from. So in verse 1 we read, it says, Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Mechlan and Chilion, which is probably a butchered rendering of the Hebrew pronunciation, but you get the idea. Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to the country of Moab, and they remained there. We're told right off the bat that this was taking place in the period of the Judges. The theme that represents what life was like during that time is that there was no king in Israel and that everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It's probably very fresh in your mind what things were like during the days of the judges. It was a time of confusion, of chaos, of everyone uh, just being lawless and rebellious against God. And, and that was the atmosphere or the setting when these things took place. The next thing we're told is that there was a famine in the land. Now, in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, whenever there was a famine in the land of Israel, the reason for that famine was the chastisement or the judgment of God upon the rebellion of his people. Throughout the law, God told the Jews that if they were rebellious and didn't keep his ways, that he would chastise them by closing the heavens and causing there to be a famine. He said it over and over again throughout the book of Deuteronomy. We see it in Chronicles, uh, Second Chronicles chapter 7. Solomon makes reference to the fact that God will shut up the heavens. And so what we understand is that this is in the midst of one of those cycles where the children of Israel have turned their back on the Lord and they're not walking right with him. And the result of that is that there's a famine. Next thing we're told is that these people are from Bethlehem in Judea. Bethlehem means house of bread, and Judah means praise. So this is taking place in the house of bread and praise, that there is a famine uh, during this land. Now, this is the third uh, time that, it's, that Bethlehem is mentioned in these appendixes of the book of Judges. It hasn't, you know, happened anywhere else but in Bethlehem that these people are leaving. And so it becomes a major place or port for us 
as we look at Israel and their history going forward, is that this is a major place, Bethlehem. And it's going to be, because David is going to come from Bethlehem, and eventually Jesus is going to come from Bethlehem. And so this story, again, takes place in Bethlehem, the house of bread and praise. And then it gives us the names of all of the characters that are involved. We're told there's Elimelech and Naomi, and then Mahalan and Chilion that are there. Now, the names of characters in the Bible are always significant. When a child would be born in that culture in those times, they would be named according to um, a prayer, perhaps, that uh, the, the parent would have for the child, a reflection or a reaction that the parent would have to the child when they would first be born. Um, and, and we see that throughout. You remember when uh, Esau was born. The son of Jacob, or the son of uh, Isaac, when Esau and Jacob were born, Esau came out and it says that he was red and he was hairy. And so Isaac named him Esau, which meant hairy and red. You know, that was what he saw, that was the reaction that he had, so that was the name that he got. Then Jacob came out right after, and Jacob was clutching the heel of Esau. And so they named him Heel Catcher, Jacob. Because that's what he was doing. And so that was common. We see that throughout the Bible. But here's the amazing thing. Is that not only do the names reflect what the parents saw or hoped or prayed or reacted to. But we find that those things often came true. That, that there was more to it than just a name. But their life reflected the name that was ultimately given to them. And we see that happen in the book of Ruth as well with the names of the characters. Elimelech means my God is king. That's what it means. Naomi means pleasantness. And we're going to see that her name is referenced to her disposition at the end of this very chapter. Mahalan, now I love this, it means sickly. Now, what kind of parent names their child sickly? It makes me wonder, what did he look like when he first came out of the womb? That his parent would look and say, hey, he's sickly. That's his name. His brother, Chilion, he had a great name too. His name means pining or wasting. You know, so we get the idea that these boys weren't the, pic the perfect picture of health. You know, a a a in the, and we see that that actually plays out in the story as we go on. That, that was, those were accurate names that were given to them by their parents. We're also told in these verses that they were Ephrathites. Of Bethlehem Judah and that's significant it almost seems like one of those small details that you would read over but I think it's there on purpose Ephrathah was the name of Bethlehem before it was named Bethlehem and, and so here's what that means here's the implication that was behind it is that this family that made up these guys they were the pioneers if you would that first settled that land when it was divided to them by Joshua. So, in other words, God planted these people in the place that they were. They were the founding members. There's no question of where God wants them, because God placed them there, and they had a part in making the place what it was, changing it from Ephrathah to Bethlehem, or the house of bread. And that, again, becomes important. So, uh, and then finally, it says that they uprooted in the time of the famine and they went to the land of Moab. Now, Moab was on the other side of the Jordan River and then to the south along the Dead Sea. The Moabites were the sworn enemies of Israel. They had a history that went all the way back to the days of Moses and the Exodus. And, uh, and, and they were not the friends of God's people. And God's people were not to be dwelling amongst them and intermarrying with them. And so here's the picture that we have here in just these opening verses as the stage is being set for us. We have a family that falls on hard times, not impossible times, but difficult times as there's a famine in the land. And things aren't happening for them the way that they hope or the way that they like. And so they lose faith in God's promises and they make a choice to leave the place where they are rooted and to go somewhere else. Now this very thing happens every day in the lives and in the realm of God's people. How's that? A Christian will go through a famine, a season where there is some dryness, where the house of bread just seems to be barren and there's not much going on spiritually. 
And they can begin to lose hope or lose faith in the reality of what God has said and what God promises that he will do within their life. That there is uh, circumstantial famine. Things aren't turning out in life the way that they would hope. There's a spiritual famine. The word of God is not alive. I'm reading the scriptures, but it seems like I'm reading, but nothing's going in. Nothing's happening. I'm sitting in church, but the words are going forth, but they're hitting the shield and, and they, they're not getting in. Nothing's happening and nothing has for a long time in, within my church life. There's a delay and an inaction in my plans and in the things that I hoped would take place within my life. And it just seems that there's a famine that's going on right now for me. And rather than waiting upon the Lord when they're in that season and trusting in God and asking him the reason for it or to give wisdom in it or to bring them through it. And on the other side, instead of waiting and discerning what it is, they decide to just leave. Sometimes it means literal relocation like it did for Elimelech and Naomi and for their family. They say, you know what? It's just not happening for us here. We heard that there's some economic activity going on over in Moab. So we'll just cross over and we'll go over there for a while because that's what's best for us financially. It's a good decision and maybe we'll make it better over there. And sometimes that can happen to Christians. They get wanderlust. And because life isn't going for them very well in the place that they are, they think, well, I can leave all of this behind and I'll go somewhere else and the change of atmosphere is going to change everything. And somehow, all of a sudden, uh, what wasn't working for me in that location will probably work for me somewhere else. It's a big mistake, what I see oftentimes. And here's why. Because you cannot, no matter how far you go or how many times you move, you cannot get away from yourself. And oftentimes, the problems that you have are not the byproduct of your environment or where you are, but it's the problems of what's going on within your heart. It could very well be that the famine that you're experiencing in your life is God's very purpose to separate you from the self that's keeping you back and keeping you down. Sometimes it means a relocation. Other times, people leave by just turning their back on God. They don't leave locations. They don't go somewhere else. They don't change their family. They just draw back from the things of God. They stop going to church. They'll stop reading their Bible. The things of, uh, of the scripture just become foreign to them. Well, I don't get anything out of it, so I'm just not going to read it anymore. It doesn't uh, do anything for me. They stop praying. It's not helping me to pray. I'm not getting anything out of that time. It's just not relevant for me right now. And so I'm just going to put God in the back seat. Maybe I'll even still go to church. I'll still do all the things and say all the right things and have the same friends. But in my heart, I've checked out on God because of this famine. I find that there are basically three reasons why Christians go through seasons of drought or times of famine. Number one, I'll call it this, and if you're taking notes, you can write it down. Number one is that there's no bread in the house of bread. That's what was taking place here in Jerusalem. I mean, there was no bread in, in Bethlehem, the house of bread. And that same thing can carry over into New Testament thinking. And that is this, what's the house of bread? It's where we are right now. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And sometimes it can be that there really is no bread in the house of bread. The church is dead. That's the non-political correct way of saying that there's no bread in the house of bread. And sometimes that can be a result of spiritual famine in an area or in a thing. I find that that's not usually the reason, though, that there's spiritual drought within an individual. Number two is what I would call the seasonal stall. And that is this, that there are times of divinely prescribed dryness in the life of the individual believer. It's part of growing. It's part of our learning to trust in him and wait upon him. It's part of our learning not to trust in the way that we feel or what we see or signs or experiences or providence but rather just leaning upon the Lord with nothing more than simple childlike faith. Lord, I, I don't know why this is happening right now. I don't know why it seems that there's this famine, this drought, things are just stagnant, but I'm not going to leave you 
I'm going to wait upon you because you've got something in mind. You're doing something. You're stretching me. You're growing me. We see that throughout the Bible in the lives of God's people. I mean, you look at David who had to run for years of his life from King Saul, wondering where was God? You read the Psalms and he says, I cry out to God in the daytime, but he doesn't hear me. Where is he? My soul, it thirsts for the living God. When will my case come before God? And he went through those times. And the reason for those times is so that David could learn that even when you're not feeling things, even when you're not seeing things, and when things aren't happening within your life, I'm still there and I'm as faithful to you in bringing you to where I've promised to bring you, even though you can't sense my presence. So sometimes it's a seasonal stall. And sometimes, and I think this is the most common, it's what I would call a self-inflicted famine. And here's what that is is that there's no problem with the soil at all that the roots are planted in. And there's no problem with the heavens. There's rain that's falling. The word of God is there. The spirit of God is there. The problem is with the roots. And that would be you and me. That's where the problem lies. See, we have basically two things that God has given us to do and to be in this world. Number one, he's called us to live a godly life. We're to walk in relationship with him. We're to enjoy his promises and his provision. Everything that we need for life and godliness has been given to us. But if we don't want to live a godly life or we're walking out in the world in a way that is contrary to the things of God and the ways of God, well, then the things of God have no place within our life and and in our, our spirit. And so we'll come to church or we'll approach the word But because we don't have the intent of living out the things that God's told us to do, then the instruction that is supposed to be sweet for us turns out to be nothing. Because I don't want to, I'm not living the life. Now, on the contrary, when I am living the life that God has called me to live, then when I come and sit in a Bible study, the Spirit of God speaks things through His Word into my soul that are going to help me when I'm in my workplace tomorrow or when I'm with that person that I can't stand or when that circumstance is is there that I don't know how to handle, I'm going to hear things or things will be imparted to me that are going to be a resource and a help and a blessing to me in those circumstances. And then I say, oh, thank you, Lord, that you've equipped me and prepared me for this time in this season. And so those things are are coming in. I read the scripture in the morning and God is speaking to me and, and I'm making connections between the circumstances in my life, the feelings in my heart and the things that are being written on the page and experienced perhaps by the Bible character. And it's bringing life into my soul because I'm realizing, God, I'm not alone in this. You're with me. You saw these circumstances. That's why you're giving me what I need right now to navigate them. But if I don't want to walk with the Lord or be obedient to his word or obey the dictate that I'm to die to myself and take up my cross and serve my wife who can sometimes be, you know, agitating or, you know, whatever it might be. If I'm not going to do it, well, I've closed off the route so that God's saturation can't come into my life. The other thing that God's called us to do is he's called us to serve. If every member of the body of Christ did not have a place to serve God, then he would have saved you and immediately called you to heaven. Because there's absolutely no purpose for you to be on earth right now and not be in heaven. It's already been paid for. Jesus said, it is my will that they be with me where I am. So if you're on earth, it means that God has something for you to do. But if you're not serving him and you have no interest in serving him, then the resources and the supply that God wants to give you to equip you to serve him effectively is not going to go in. And you'll say, oh, I'm not getting anything out of it. I'm not getting anything out of, uh, of my church experience. It's because you're not putting anything into your church experience. And so what will happen to you is this. You'll come to church or you'll read the Bible or you'll be in fellowship and prayer with God. You'll do that as long as it does something for you. It's intellectually stimulating. It's uplifting in some way. It's mildly entertaining, depending on who's speaking and how long the day was. You know, all those kind of things. But once that goes away, and that always goes away, what's left is, God, am I being equipped and prepared for what you have for me in my life to walk with you and in my service to serve you and bear fruit for you? And if those things aren't real in my life, then inevitably there's going to be famine. 
And it's not a problem with the heavens. It's not a problem with the soil. It's a problem with me. And oftentimes, that's the reason for famine in the life of a Christian. Those other things happen. Seasonal stalls and no bread in the house of bread. That can happen. But most of the time, I find that famine in my life is my fault. And the design of that famine then is to get me to call back out to God and say, God, what's going on? And then he can set my feet right. That's why he did it to Israel. It's why he does it to us. It's why he allowed Elimelech to go through it. But Elimelech said, no, thank you. I'm out of here. Well, that's the scene. What's the outcome? Notice in verse 3. It says, then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. My God is king, died. And that's always what happens when we turn our back on God. His kingship, his sovereign authority within our life, dies. And we spiritually oftentimes sense that death within ourselves. He died literally. It says, and uh, she, Naomi, was left and her two sons. Now they took wives of the women of Moab. So the second thing that happens there in the setting is that the sons, who are supposed to be godly Jews, raised up in the ways of God, they marry pagan wives. So now the family is following the folly of this man who went astray. It says they married women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah, which means back of the neck. And as we'll see, that's going to be a perfect name for Orpah. And the name of the other was Ruth. Her name means friendship, and she will become the main character within this story. And it says that they dwelt there for about 10 years. That's a long time. It says then, now I love this. I don't love it, but you, you get the idea for the picture's sake. It says both Mahlon and Chilion also died. So the woman survived her two sons and her husband. And so we see now that the result of this shift moving to Moab from Bethlehem is that now uh, three of these have died and these two, uh, three women now are childless and impoverished and widowed. And that means that they have a problem. Because to be a widow in those days meant that you had no one to provide for you. And your chances of remarrying, especially for Naomi, would be extremely slim because she was getting on in years as she's going to allude to herself. And so these guys are in a big problem right now because of this. And what this does is this brings us to our first point. And if you're taking notes, you can write this down. And that's this, is that if you distance yourself in the days of discouragement, then don't be surprised if things start to die. Because that's exactly what's going to happen within your life. When you turn your back on God, you're going to feel it. In John chapter 15, Jesus said, he gave this illustration concerning our relationship with God. He said, I am the vine and you are the branches. He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, that you'll bear fruit. But if you are detached from me, if you're cut off from the vine, then those branches that are detached are good for nothing. They dry up, they wither. And their destiny is to be gathered up and thrown into the fire and burned. They're good for absolutely nothing. It's fitting to me that Jesus used a grapevine as that analogy. Because grape wood or the vine that grows off of a grape branch is good for absolutely nothing but bearing grapes. You can't make furniture with it. You can't make a bow and arrow. You can do nothing with a grapevine except bear grapes. That's it. And Jesus said, once it's detached from the vine, it serves no purpose at all. And he used that as the illustration of our relationship with God. Here's the point. That you, Christian, were made, created by God to receive life from him and bear fruit for him. That's where life is found. And if you detach yourself from him, then you're going to dry up, you're going to wither, you're going to die, and it's absolutely good for nothing. It's what we were made for. Anytime you see someone turn their back on God and draw back, the outcome is always bad. We see it with Abraham when he went down to Egypt in the days of famine. He was supposed to be in Canaan, but he didn't like the rate of return he was getting on his sheep and produce index. I call it the S&P. You know, the sheep and produce index wasn't supplying the kind of yield that he wanted. And so he went down to Egypt because he could get a better return. He could do better down there, but it turned out to be a disaster for successive generations as he came back with Hagar and made a mess for himself. 
I think of the prodigal son. He didn't like the restrictive guidelines that were placed upon him by his father living in his father's house. So he said, give me the money. I want to go and do it better for myself. But he ended up eating and living out of a pig's trough. And he tucked his tail and he went back and he said, even the servants in my father's house have it better than me. I think of John Mark, that would-be missionary who didn't like the workload and the travel schedule. And so he quit and he went back home. And the result of it is that he was overlooked for a huge promotion later on. Anytime that we check out because we don't like what God's doing in our lives, the conditions are only going to get worse. Things for us will never turn out good in the end. And that brings us to our second point. It's what we see in these successive verses going forward. And that's this. It's very simple. If you've distanced yourself from God, go back. Look with me at verse 6. It says, then she arose, this is Naomi, with her daughters-in-law, that she might return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. Therefore, she went out from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. Now, this becomes a major theme throughout the rest of the chapter. Twelve times, you're going to see the word return or turn back. It's the same thing. And that's exactly what Naomi is doing now. She's turning back, not just to Bethlehem, the place of her nativity, but she's turning back to the Lord symbolically. This is the definition of repentance. Did you know that? The definition of repentance means to turn around and go back. And after 10 years of being in the place of Moab, even though there may have been provision for her outwardly, her spirit has dried up completely. And she's now ready to go back to the house of bread, to the place where God had visited his people. And she knows what it's like to be right with God. And she wants to be back there. I can't help but think of David here at this point in the text. This man who is so favored by God, who clearly was saved and blessed and and had a, a tight walk with God. But it tells us that later on in his life, he was lifted up with a little bit of pride and he got a little bit loose with his morals and he fell into sin with a woman named Bathsheba. He got her pregnant And then he turned to have her husband murdered to try to cover up the sin, make it look like he did it. And he continued on in that state for about a year and a half before he was confronted by a prophet who called him out and said, David, you're guilty. You have sinned against God. And David didn't persist in his sin. He didn't stay in that place, but he acknowledged it. He owned it and he repented. And in his repentance, he penned two Psalms, Psalm 51 and Psalm 32. And in those Psalms, he illustrates vividly the flood of life that came back into his soul when he turned back to God. He knew that's what he needed to do. He needed to get right. And he describes a flood of joy and of peace and of purpose and of fruitfulness that flooded back into his life at the moment that he decided to turn back to God after being wayward for that year and a half. He says that my bones were dried up. My tears became my meat and my food. I couldn't sleep with my head upon my pillow. But God, you brought me back. You've restored the joy of my salvation and its life and sweetness to me. And so Naomi turns back. And if you've distanced yourself from God, go back. Turn back to God. Now, the third thing that we see here in our third point, if you're taking notes, we see in verse 8 and onward is this. Is that he, that is God, uses our pain couples it with his peace to point people to himself. Watch what happens. Verse 8. It says, And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each to her mother's house. So she's encouraged them to go back to Moab. The Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead, that is, her two sons and her, her husband, and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each in the house of her husband. So she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. Then they said to her, Surely we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Now that's a main question there. You might want to circle that or highlight it. She says, Are there still sons in my womb that they may be your husband's? 
Turn back, my daughters, go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, if I should have a husband tonight and should also bear sons, would you wait for them till they were grown? Would you restrain yourselves from having husbands? No, my daughters, for it grieves me very much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. This is the first reverence to the Leverite law that we see here. She says, hey, if I were to have sons now and you were to wait the 18 years for them to grow up, would you wait that long? She says, this has been uh, bitter. The Lord has gone out against me. And so they, it says that, verse 14, they lifted up their voices and they wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Now, I call this, and, and, and what's going to happen in this verse? In fact, let's just read on. Let me read you verse 15 through, through uh, 17 here. It says, and she said, look. Your sister-in-law, so she's speaking to Ruth now, has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything, but death parts you and me. And when she saw that she was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking to her. Now, I call this part dissuasive evangelism. And you'll see what I mean by that in just a minute. We see that the two daughters, they go with Naomi for a certain span on her journey back to Bethlehem. But then they they come to a point and Naomi turns to them and says, that's far enough, girls. Now you guys go back home. Go back to your mothers. Go back to your lives. Even go back to your gods that you served in Moab. A terrible thing for, for a Jewish woman who's repenting to say. But nevertheless, she says it and she calls them to go back. Now, they protest at first. They say, no, no, we're not going back. We're going to go with you where you go. And then Naomi begins this part of dissuasion. She says, what is the purpose and the point of you going back with me to that place? There's nothing for you there. Your lives are here. My life is there. And then she says just one thing. She says, you're not going to get a husband if you come with me back to this land. If if I were to have a child tonight, it wouldn't work out for you. It's just not going to happen. No one's going to marry a Moabite when they come back to the land. It's not going to happen. And I love this because Orpah goes... Okay, you're probably right. You know, send me a text message when you get there and we'll keep in touch, you know. And and then it says that she kisses Naomi and she goes her way. She gives her the back of the neck as her name is, Orpah. And she heads back uh, into that land. Then it seems like the dialogue went on with Ruth. Because not only does Ruth persist after Orpah turns away, But then she gives this answer that implies to me one of two things. Either she had the personality of an Anne of Green Gables. You know, you ever ever see that? You know, the, the whole character there was that she was so epic in everything she said. I mean, she would take the simple thing of saying that, you know, these muffins are good. And it would be something like... The, the, the thrills of my palate are swooning in my head, you know, and it would be this insane. Either that's her personality or Naomi really laid it on to her here trying to get her to go home. Because she, she answers five different ways. She says, where you go, I'll go. Where you lodge, I'll lodge. Your people are my people. Your God is my God. Where you die, I'll die. And there I will be buried. The Lord do so to me and more also if anything, but death parts you and me. And here's the point, is that Naomi really explained clearly to Ruth what it meant to live as an Israelite. Listen, Ruth, you can't come live among us and keep the lifestyle of the Moabites. You guys all sleep around with each other. You'll go and stay in a different house every night. You can't do that in our land when our people are walking with our God. And Ruth's response to her was, where you lodge, that's where I'm going to lodge. I'm not going to go from place to place, from house to house. She says, well, you can't can't come and go out of the land as you want. We're not a transient people. We plant our roots. God plants us in a place and we stay there. We bear fruit where we're planted. And she says, no, where you go, that's where I'm going to go. 
And then she says, well, you know, you don't understand what it is to, to live amongst my people. We're one. There's a code. There's a standard. There's a love. There's a, there's a spiritual atmosphere amongst us. And you're a Moabite, and, 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 and you have to live in that. And she responds. She says, no, no, no. Your people are going to be my people. I'm not ashamed to be counted among you or, or bear the reproach of what it would mean to be a Jew in your land. And then she says to her, but listen, Ruth, I understand all of that. But realize, I'm a lot older than you are. And I'm going to die one day. And then what are you going to do? You're just going to have nothing. You'll go back. And she says, listen, where you die, that's where I'm going to die. And after Naomi dissuades her in every way possible, making it clear to her what it meant to live the life of a Jew. And Ruth persisted and said, I am going to be by your side. And it says that Ruth clung to her. That's when Naomi stopped speaking to her and let her go. This is called dissuasive evangelism. It's called counting the cost. The key question in this interaction between Naomi and these two girls is back up there in verse 11. She said, why will you go with me? I think that's a great question that we should really ask ourselves concerning our own desire to be walking with the Lord. Why? Why are you walking with the Lord right now? Why did you come to Christ? Why are you a Christian? When you talk to people about getting saved, coming to Christ, what's the reason? Why? Why do they want to get saved? I think that's a great question. Is it for what God is going to do for you? That's what it was for Orpah. Hey, you know the gods of the Moabites, Chemosh? He's kind of cruel and We don't have any intimacy with him. He's kind of a hard taskmaster. I'd be curious to see what it's like to follow the God of Israel. And so she walks with Naomi for a span, but then Naomi turns to her and says, hey, you know, this isn't going to work out for you the way you want. You're hoping to get a husband. You're hoping to receive something from him, but he's not going to do that. That's not why we're Israelites. It's not what it's about. A God who just gives us things. And Orpah says, oh, really? Yeah, well, maybe it's uh, not so much for me then. Here's the point. There's a whole group of people that the reason they follow God is not for who he is, but for what he gives. They follow him because they hope to achieve from him or receive from him something that they couldn't get on their own. Sometimes it is a spouse, a husband. Other times it's prosperity. Sometimes it's just a right mind. Now listen, don't get me wrong. God gives and does all of those things for his people. But that's not why we come. See, the reason we come to God is because we're lost in sin and separated from him. It's because we were created in his image. And the reason he made us is so that he could complete us and make us the expression of what we were intended to be, an expression of himself. We come to him because it's in his name alone that there is life and there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. That's why we come. We don't come for what he gives. We come for who he is. It isn't until we are willing to acknowledge the fact that he may give us nothing. It may mean that we have to live and lodge in a place that we don't like. It may mean that we can't go somewhere that we maybe would want to go in our flesh because he's planted us where we are. And it might even mean that we have to die for his name. And it isn't until we come to that point where we say, God, because of what you did for me in demonstrating your love and sending your son, and because of the hope and the eternal destiny that's laid up for me in heaven, God, I will go anywhere you call me to go. I will lodge where you call me to lodge. I will be who you call me to be. And though I never have a spouse or a house or a job any day of my life from now until the day I die, I'm going to follow you. Not for what you give, but because of who you are. If your commitment to God is Orpah, then your destiny in Christ will be short-lived. You'll be here. You'll hang out for a while. You'll be disillusioned, disappointed, and then you'll be gone. But if your heart towards God is, God, you love me so much and you promise me everlasting fellowship with you, you promise me friendship that's closer than a brother, intimacy that no human being could ever provide and that you're going to take care of all my needs and you've prepared a place for me in glory and you shed your blood to pay for every one of my itemized iniquities. And God, I love you because you first loved me. That's the life that will enjoy the blessing of who God is and the bounty of what he gives. It gets thrown into. But see, Ruth had that. Orpah didn't. Ruth, it says, Orpah kissed Naomi, but Ruth 
clung to her. And when she was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking to her. I believe that in many cases, one more thing on this point, and then we'll move on to the end of the chapter. I believe that the reason why a lot of our evangelistic efforts um, fall upon deaf ears uh, and, and the reason why we don't see a whole lot of things um, happen as we share the Lord with people is because the power of uh, our gospel is, is ineffective because our gospel is impotent. In other words, we don't give people the full gospel. We'll give them the, okay, well, you want peace and you want joy and you need some help in your life and you've screwed things up thus far. Why don't you try God? And then, you know, people say, yeah, you know, you're into the whole Christian thing and the Bible thing and the church thing. My parents do that, uh, but it's just not my life. You know, I kind of see through the hypocrisy of it all. Listen, what did Paul the Apostle say? He said this, Romans 1.16. He said, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. What is the gospel that is powerful? It's that you are a sinner separated from God. That in your fallen condition, your state before a holy God is absolute wickedness. You're not good. You're not better than someone else. You are absolutely filthy, separated from God, alienated from him. But he loved you so much that he went to a cross. He lived a perfect life and he shed perfect blood on purpose. And now he calls you to repent of your sins and come to him and be saved. And here's the good news is that he will accept anyone who comes to him on those terms. And when that message is preached, not the message of a positive life, but the message of the forgiveness of sins through the cross of Calvary, God gets behind that message and he penetrates hearts and he brings people to himself. But if our gospel is impotent, we can't expect to see much fruit from it. I think also sometimes our sharing is stalled because our scent is unknown. See, what was it about Naomi's life that caused Ruth to see in her something that she wanted for herself? There was the scent of suffering. Naomi had lost her husband and her two sons. She was discouraged. She was in a set of circumstances that were bad. It was affecting her, even her spirits, but really it wasn't directly her fault. But she didn't get bitter against God in that she wouldn't go back to him. She was bitter at her circumstances. But she arose and went back. And when Ruth saw in Naomi's life a faithful spirit in the midst of calamity. Ruth said, I want that in my life. I've never heard of a God that can give peace and comfort in the midst of chaos. And I think that that's a good thing for you and I to consider. You say, why am I going through what I'm going through? It might well be that it's so that the people in your life can see the work of God's Holy Spirit within you in the midst of your tragedy and draw them to himself through it. He uses our pain, couples it with his peace to point people through himself. We see it here. Ruth clung to Naomi. We see our final point in verses 19 through 24. Point number four is this, is that patience pays great dividends. Watch verse 19. It says, now the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. And it happened that when they came to Bethlehem, that all the city was excited because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? But she said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Now again, Naomi means pleasant. Mara means bitterness. And she says, call me bitter because the Lord has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Why do you call me Naomi since the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? Now, I want you to notice something here. There's an incredible contrast in these verses. What does it say about the people of Bethlehem in verse 19? It says that they were excited. You see that? We're going to see in the next chapter that the revival that was taking place in Bethlehem was legit. They were so on fire for the Lord there that not only was the harvest booming, but even the fellowship between the bosses and the employees was spiritual in nature. I mean, God is really moving in Bethlehem and the people there are excited. They're in fellowship with God. Truly, he has visited his people. Now, what does Naomi say? She says, first of all, I'm bitter 
because of the things that I've experienced. And second of all, notice most profound thing. She says this. She says, I went out full and I'm returning again empty. Wait a minute. I thought you went out because you were empty. I thought that the reason you were leaving Bethlehem is because there was a famine there and things weren't happening the way you want. Life wasn't giving you a fair hand. And so you were going to go somewhere where you could write your own ticket and make it better for yourself. But what she did is that she did what many of us do is that she took for granted the things that she had that were true riches and replaced them in her mind for things that don't really matter that much. See, what's important? You have a wife, you have a husband, you have a couple of kids, they're healthy, you have food to eat today, you're rich. That's what Naomi learned. Well, wait a minute, but, but the, 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 the increase, the riches, the prospect, the spiritual life, things aren't what they once were, what they should be. What's valuable to you? Here's the lesson. You don't know what you got till it's gone. And that's exactly what happened to Naomi. I went out full, but I came again empty. I thought I was going to have the world, but everything I had was taken from me. I come back with absolutely nothing. She's totally empty. So what's the point of all of this, the patience that pays great dividends? The people of Bethlehem waited. There was a famine. God was dealing with them. His dealing with them worked. They turned back to him, and now there's bounty, there's blessing, there's excitement. Had Naomi, had Elimelech and their sons just waited, they wouldn't be in a state of bitterness and emptiness at this point in their life, but rather they would be full and they would be experiencing the, the excitement amongst the people of God. For you and me, it means patience is key. How important is waiting when it comes to our Christian experience? Sometimes we go through things, prolonged seasons, where we wonder what and why God is doing what he's doing. And it makes absolutely no sense to us whatsoever. If you check out, you miss it. If you wait, you see it. Many of you have heard my story of the year and a half I spent in the tunnel that goes under the graves of those that perished at 9-11 at the World Trade Center. And I won't get into the horror of what that pit was like for that year and a half, but I remember one uh, day near the end of that time, um, and, and there was great famine in the land in my life, you know, during that season. And every day they would put me in that tunnel by myself because they were basically too cheap to provide someone to go in. And, and that was against the law. It was, uh, that, it was that crazy in there that you weren't even allowed to be in there by yourself. But I was in there by myself, you know, for a long time. And I, I got to a point where I had had it. It was up to here, you know, a limelech, like I'm leaving kind of a thing. And I remember I called my boss on an on a, a evening at the end of the day and I said, that's it. I'm not going in that tunnel by myself again. Either you get someone here to go in there with me or I'm not going in. And the boss said, all right, I promise I'll have someone there tomorrow to go into the tunnel with you. And that's, that was good enough for me. I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll take that. But inside, I knew that when I got there in the morning, there wasn't going to be anybody. And sure enough, I show up, there's nobody there. And I say, that's it. I gave warning. I said, I'm not going in if no one's here. And, and I'm not going in. That's it. So I called up the boss. I said, no one's here. I'm not going in. I hung up the phone, packed up my tools. And then I went. And before I left, I sat down for a minute. And I, and I did something, you know, um, I'm glad now. But I opened up Oswald Chambers, My Utmost for His Highest. You know, that daily devotional that goes through. It was August 10th. And I read through that devotional thinking that maybe God would give me some justification for what I'm doing or, or, or whatever, you know. And I go through it and, I, and, and the last two sentences of the devotional that day hit me like a hammer. It said this. It said, God puts us in the place where we're going to bring the most glory to him. And sometimes we're completely incapable of judging where that might be. And I read that and I said to God, I said, God... Are you telling me that the place where I'm going to bring you the most glory today is isolated in a tunnel where I don't interact with any other human soul? And he said, yep. Please get in the tunnel. And I, you know, and I don't want you to think that like God and I were having like this like audible thing. I'm like you, you know, but I knew, you know, I knew in my heart 
that that's what he was saying to me. And I said, all right. Because, you know, at this point I'm busted. What am I going to do now, you know? Now, I wish I could say, I had a spiritual breakthrough and the battle hymn of the Republic started playing in the background and I pulled myself up from my bootstraps and I went in there in the spirit of the Lord and he, no, it didn't really happen like that. You know, I was still kind of, I had a great day that day. You know, I had to go back successive days. But here's the point, is that it wasn't too long after that that God got me out of the tunnel and there was a whole shifting of the atmosphere of my whole life. But if that day I had checked out on God and said, God, I don't want to do this because I don't like the bitterness of this situation, that I would have missed out on everything that God wanted to do and was doing within my life that I didn't understand yet. See, here's the point. Naomi doesn't know this is only chapter one. There's still chapters two, three, and four to go. And she's seeing all of the circumstances that are surrounding her here in chapter one. And she's saying, God has dealt bitterly with me. This is ugliness. This is terrible. No, 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 Naomi, you've got to read the rest of the story. Because though you're dealing with bitterness because of the things that you did in the places that you were in the past, God is able to take all of the kale and the spinach and the basil that doesn't belong in that blender, put it in there, Mix it up, and on the other side, he's going to do something for you that's so incredible that if someone were to tell it to you, you would never even be able to believe it for yourself. And that's what God is doing in this woman's life here at this point. He's about to do something so incredible, but she just can't see it yet. But here's the point, is that patience pays off. We're going to see as we move forward in this study what happens when the people of God follow the will of God so that they can live the life of God as they go forward. The worship team can come. Everyone in this room right now is one person in this story. There's no one here that's excluded. You are someone in this narrative. You may be the people of Bethlehem going through a a spiritual drought. You know, it could be your fault. It could be seasonal famine. It could be, I doubt it, no bread in the house of bread. Just saying, you know. But it might be you tonight. You might be a Bethlehemite. The counsel for you is wait upon the Lord. Seek him and see what he's doing in your life. You might be a Limelech here. You're a Christian, but you're discontented. You're disillusioned. You're doubtful that God's working in your life and you're ready to digress. This whole God thing isn't happening for you and you're going to go. Perhaps you've already gone. Let me tell you something, a Limelech. You're going to die. The presence of God is going to die within your life. The peace of God is going to depart even more. You're going to see that what good things you have, you're going to lose them one by one. Beware, Elimelech. You might be Orpah. You're here, but the reason you're here isn't because of who he is, but it's because of what you might get or what he might do for you. Beware, Orpah. You might be Ruth. You've tasted everything that this world has to give And you've come to the conclusion that the best this world has is nothing more than an empty box wrapped with bright, beautiful paper. And that you're going to go for God no matter what it costs. You might be Naomi. You might be sitting here tonight on a pile of ruins that resulted from a sojourn in Moab. And you've tasted life away from the Lord. And you're at a point where you say, even if I have to go it alone, I'm going back to God. You might be here tonight and you might be Mara. You might be, say, that's me. I'm Mara. I'm bitter. To think the way the things have fallen out for me and it makes you sick inside. Listen. Naomi has a pile of ashes that she has to deal with now. But God's going to lift her up. And here's the thing that she doesn't understand yet in her bitterness. Is that Jesus, the very Messiah, came into the world as the son of David. But there would have been no David if there had been no Ruth. And there would have been no Ruth if it hadn't been for Naomi's time in Moab. Here's the final, final point as we finally come to this close. Romans 8.28 is that he is able to work all things together for good to those that love God and are called according to his purpose. And no matter what heap of ruins you may be sitting atop of tonight, if you'll commit your life back to God, he will put it back together And he'll do great things, things that you know not. Father, we thank you so much for this time tonight. We thank you for your word, Lord, that you're preparing us for things that you've before ordained. And you're preparing things for us, Lord, things that we can't understand and that we can't know. 
And in the middle of it all, you're moving your kingdom onward. And we thank you so much, Lord, for that, for that great call that you've given to us. We pray, Lord, that you would move us forward in it and that you'd give us hope, renew our strength, and speak to us through this narrative. Hey, before I say amen, you might be here tonight and you don't know Jesus Christ yet personally. Here's the fact, the truth, is that God made you to be in a relationship with himself. That's what you were created for. There is no purpose, there's no existence or life outside of that very thing of knowing him personally. He didn't create you for religion. He didn't create you to come to church. He created you so that you could be one with him in constant communion and that you could have fellowship with him. Hear his voice, talk to him, and feel his leading in your spirit. But here's the, here's the problem with that, is that your sins have separated you from that grace and from that relationship. And because of the sinful fall, you're in darkness and you can't come into fellowship with God. The Bible says that you're alienated from the life of God. You're in spiritual darkness. And that's the reason why there's no peace within your life. It's the reason why you're anxious, why your head hits the pillow and you're filled with questions more than you are filled with answers and assurance of where you are in your life. It's the result of that sin. But here's what God did for you. The Bible says that he loved you so much. That his thoughts towards you are more in number than the sand that's on the seashore. That he has a purpose and a plan and he made you by design specifically so that he could be glorified through your life. And so what he did is that he became a man and he lived the sinless life and he paid for every single one of your sins with his own blood. He signed the check. And now he offers to you the gift of salvation. And what that means is not that you are coming to church. It means that you are inviting God to appropriate the blood to your life so that your sins can be forgiven and so that you can know him personally and he'll bring you back into that relationship with himself. But here's what he says that you have to do. You have to receive him. You have to acknowledge that you're separated from him, own the fact that he paid for it, and then ask him to become the Lord and Savior of your life. And the Bible says that if you come to him and receive him, that he'll give you the right to be called his son or daughter and that you'll be saved. Your name will be written in his book. His spirit will come into your life. You'll immediately feel the weight of your sins fall away and you'll experience the peace of God flood your heart. You'll know, automatic, you'll know why you were created as you come into that fellowship and the relationship that you have with him. But you need to receive it. And maybe tonight you're here and you've never yet received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And I want to give you an opportunity to do that tonight, to acknowledge him as Lord. And so here's, here's how that looks, is that the musicians are going to start to play in just a minute. And if you're here tonight and you want to receive Christ, you want to see him begin to work within your life, then when the music begins, just get up out of your seat, come forward and stand right here in the front. And I'm going to lead you in a prayer It'll be your prayer, your heart communicating with God. I'll give you the words, and God's going to meet with you right here. He's going to forgive you. He's going to save you, and your sins are going to be gone. Your name's going to be written in his book. You're not joining a church. You're not coming to religion. You're coming to Jesus Christ. It's the reason God made you. And listen, time is short, and he brought you here tonight so that you could get to know him personally and see his salvation. And so the musicians are going to play. The room is filled with people that are praying for you. I'm praying for you. And if you need to get right with God, this is your time. Even if you're the only one here, just like Ruth was willing to make a stand and say, God, I'm willing to be counted no matter what the cost. Will you tonight make a stand for Jesus? This is your chance. So Ashley's going to pray, play. We're going to pray. And if you're that person tonight, come forward now. Ashley.